Section 25 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Third Decade, Chapter 3, The Poitiers Campaign, Part 1. Under pressure of the double alarm caused by the English invasion and the emptiness of the French exchequer, King John had taken the unwonted and critical step of calling together the States-General of France, or rather of the northern portion of his kingdom, in which the langue was spoken. For France was at this time divided into two great provinces, the Languedoc and the langue the former speaking the Roman Provençal and ruled by custom, the latter speaking the Roman Wallon and ruled by written law. The Languedoc of those days comprised the whole of the country south of the line of the Dordogne, whereas in modern French geography it is limited, like our own Northumberland, to a small central portion of the wide territory once included in its boundaries and implied in its name. Though, like all French kings, extremely unwilling to grant his subjects a voice in their own government, John's great-uncle, Philip the Fair, had invented this institution, les états généraux, in imitation probably of the Spanish Cortes or the English Parliament. But the states were so unfrequently and capriciously assembled as to offer no resemblance except in outward form to free parliaments. They had no experience in public affairs, were wholly unacquainted with finance, and indeed the public accounts of France were kept on so rude and cumbrous a system that experts only professed to understand them. Roman instead of Arabic numerals and notation were used in keeping these accounts, and in fact continued to be used in France down to the 18th century. The states on this occasion hardly knew the way to set about the problem proposed to them, namely, how to raise a sum of money which should enable the government to pay off the more urgent public debts, store the arsenals, equip the soldiers, and remedy the disastrous consequences of the debasement of the coinage. They granted the king a liberal supply, but in order to raise it, imposed two taxes of the most oppressive and unpopular kind, namely the octroi, or duty of eight pence on the pound of everything sold, and an impost upon salt, the gabelle, which has always been for some mysterious reason peculiarly exasperating to the French people. One of the results of this measure was a renewal of hostilities between King John and the King of Navarre, for he and his barons, and notably the Count of Arcourt, declared that whoever else paid the salt tax, their people should not, an insult which the French king deeply resented and ere long ferociously avenged. The eldest son of King John was Charles, afterwards called the Dauphin, the first of that title, which has ever since been borne by the heir apparent of the kings of France, the reversion of it having been sold to Philip VI by the last Dauphin of Viennois. This Charles, having been created Duke of Normandy, had, at his father's instigation, invited the nobles of that province to a banquet at his court at Rouen. As they sat at table, the King of France entered, accompanied by a marshal with a drawn sword in his hand, and seizing Charles of Navarre and shaking him, cried out furiously, 
By the beard of my father, I will neither eat nor drink as long as you are alive. An attempt was made at resistance, but it was overpowered by King John's attendants, who at his command carried off the King of Navarre and kept him in safe custody. The Count of Arcour and other barons were also seized. Then, after the king had leisurely dined, he and the young duke with their retinue took horse and rode out to the field of mercy, and there witnessed the execution of the count and the other nobles. The more important victim was sent to Paris and committed to the prison of the Louvre. Upon this his brother Philip of Navarre and Godfrey, brother of the murdered count, having sent their defiance to John calling himself King of France, took ship for England and threw themselves into the arms of Edward. The English king espoused their quarrel and sent orders to the Duke of Lancaster to march into Normandy to their assistance. The Duke's brief campaign in that province was inglorious and unimportant except for the advantage it gave to the French king, who, having raised an army to resist him and overrun Normandy, was enabled at once to march southwards and get beforehand with the Prince of Wales. It was feared that the prince's invasion by way of Bordeaux was directed against Paris, so King John took up his headquarters at Chartres, a position which enabled him to command at once the approaches to the capital and the passages of the Loire. Young Edward had begun to be called the Black Prince, not from the color of his armor, as is generally supposed, but in imitation of the French, who named him perhaps in no very complimentary sense, Le Prince Noir. But he probably took pride in a title more famous and dearer to the English than that of the Duke of Aquitaine or Prince of Wales, and in his will we read of the black drapery of his hall and the black devices and plumes which he used only at tournaments. He now marched out of Bordeaux with an army which probably never exceeded 8,000 men and must have been considerably reduced in number before the day of the great battle. He crossed the Dordogne at Bergerac, and overran in turn the counties of Quercy, Limousin, Auvergne, and Blois. But it was not till he had got as far north as Vierzon that he learned that the French army in great force was in possession of the line of the Loire. Whatever may have been his intentions, it had now become evident that to effect a junction with Lancaster by marching into Normandy was out of the question but as the French army lay north of his position, he reckoned on being able to command a safe retreat with its accumulated spoils to Bordeaux. The farthest point which he reached was Romorantin, which it took him three days hard fighting to reduce, though not only cannon but Greek fire also are said to have been employed in the siege. After this perilous delay, for he was in complete ignorance of the movements of the French, he commenced his retreat by way of Poitiers toward Bordeaux. Meanwhile, King John, who, if he then meant to intercept the prince, had already lost precious time, moved his forces across the Loire, and the two armies marched along only a few miles apart, in two lines, at first nearly parallel, but soon converging rapidly on the village of Chauvigny, where there was a bridge over the Vienne. But the French crossed the river first, though it took their long columns of mailed horsemen more than a day to pass over the bridge, and on Saturday, September 17th, 
the prince discovered by finding a reconnoitering party driven in on his front that the French army now lay between himself and home. This troop of observation was commanded by a Gascon lord, the Captal or chieftain de Bouche, who from this time forward becomes one of the most prominent figures in the war. When he brought to the English camp the news of the position of the French forces and of their prodigious numbers, the full danger of his situation flashed at once on the mind of the prince. God help us, said he, all that is left us is to fight as best we can. As the only fear of the French was lest the enemy should escape out of the trap into which they had been brought, they allowed the prince leisure to choose his own position, which he did with consummate generalship and rare good fortune. The main strength of the French army lay in its splendid cavalry, while the English had but a small force of men-at-arms and relied chiefly upon their archers. It was of the first importance to select a battlefield affording effectual cover for the latter, and at the same time presenting every possible natural obstacle to the movements of horse. Such a spot they found some five miles from the city of Poitiers, on the edge of the plains of Maupertuis, overlooking a valley which was intersected by the little river Miozon, and already filled as far as the eye could see, with the glittering squadrons of 40,000 French cavalry. The hill itself was surrounded with close fields and with hedges, then in the thick leafage of autumn, through which arrows could fly, but mounted men could not make their way. One steep lane through which four horsemen could barely ride abreast led up to a vineyard on the hill, and there the black prince and his little force of English men-at-arms took up what many doubtless thought was their last stand at daybreak on Monday, September 19th, 1356. One half of the archers had been placed close along the back of the hedges on either side of the hollow lane, and one half were posted in front of the prince's position, drawn up in open lines, one man behind another, and presenting to a bird's-eye view a strong resemblance to a harrow. Both armies had taken up their respective positions and expected battle on the Sunday. But before the attack sounded, the Cardinal Tolerant Perigord gained audience of the French king, and with uplifted hands entreated him to pause. Most dear sire, he said, you have here with you all the flower of knighthood of your kingdom against a handful of peoples such as the English are when compared with your army and you may have them upon other terms than by battle, which will be more honorable and profitable for you than to risk such a fine army and such noble persons. I implore you, therefore, for the love of God, to let me go to the prince and remonstrate with him. The cardinal found young Edward fully conscious of his perilous situation, and even in want of food, and in answer to the question whether he would accept mediation, he said at once that he was ready to listen to any terms that would save his own and his soldiers' honor. The cardinal returned to King John and represented to him that it was impossible for the English to escape him, gained his reluctant consent to a truce till daybreak on Monday, upon which the king dismissed his army to their quarters and caused to be erected on the spot where he stood his rich pavilion of vermilion samite. The cardinal passed a busy Sunday between the royal tent 
and the camping ground of the prince, endeavoring with evident sincerity of purpose to stave off the impending conflict. The prince on his part was willing to yield up all the places and towns which he had taken, to set all his prisoners at liberty without ransom, and to swear an oath that he would not appear in arms against France for seven years. But the Bishop of Chalon, who hated the English king, rose up in the French council of war, and said that it would be folly and weakness not to grasp the victory of blood which God Almighty had put into their hands. This cruel and unchristian suggestion prevailed over the benevolent efforts of the cardinal, who was told plainly enough at last that he might go home as soon as he pleased, or worse, might betide him. The final terms offered to the prince were that the rest of the English army would be allowed to depart on condition that he and one hundred of his knights would surrender at discretion to the French king. These were conditions which even the Pacific cardinal could not urge upon the acceptance of the prince, to whom he said at parting that there was now nothing for it but to fight it out and to fight his best. Young Edward answered, That will I and my soldiers do, and God defend the right. During the whole of that Sunday, well or ill-spent, who shall say, the English had been raising banks and digging trenches and making barricades of wagons to strengthen the weak points of their position, and Monday morning found them cool and collected and drawn up, as on the Saturday before. The battle was to be fought on foot, but the prince and his men-at-arms had their horses close at hand, and a small squadron kept their saddles to be ready for an emergency. A new feature in the disposition of today was that a body of three hundred bowmen and as many more men-at-arms were placed in ambush behind a rising ground at a little distance on the French left, to be ready at a critical moment to make a flank attack on the battle of the Duke of Normandy, who, with the two elder sons of King John, commanded the second of the three grand divisions of the French army, the first being led by the Duke of Orléans, and the third, which stood as a reserve in the rear, by the king himself. Each of these battles consisted of 16,000 men-at-arms, and there, says Foissart, might be seen all the flower of the nobility of France, richly dressed out in brilliant armor. No knight or squire, for fear of dishonor, dared to remain at home. When both armies were arrayed, King John asked the advice of Sir Eustache de Ribemont, who, together with his old companion de Charny, was in the field, as to the best means of attacking the English position. He replied with bad judgment but fatal persuasiveness, On foot, sire, except three hundred chosen men, the best soldiers in your army, who must be well mounted and armed to break, if possible, this body of archers, then your battalions must advance on foot and attack the men-at-arms hand to hand. End of section 25